Hey, Mike here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Dark Poutine early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to Dark Poutine. I am Mike Brown, captain of this flying saucer, and uh, with me is my co-pilot, Matthew. Say hello, Matthew. Nanu, nanu. Exactly. Shazbot. <laughs> For all you young people, that's from Mork and Mindy. <laughs> the views, information, and opinions expressed during the Dark Poutine podcast are solely those of the producer and do not necessarily represent those of Curious Cast, its affiliate, Global News, nor their parent company, Chorus Entertainment. Dark Poutine is not for the faint of heart or squeamish. Our content is often intense and some listeners may find it disturbing. We are not experts on the topics we present, nor are we journalists. We are ordinary Canadian schmucks chatting about crime and the dark side of history. Let's get to it. Put on your toque, grab yourself a double-double and an Nanaimo bar, and your towel. You have to have your towel, according to Douglas Adams. It's time to scarf down some dark poutine. Coming at you from planet Earth. The history of humanity is rife with stories of unexplained things in the skies above us. Handed down first verbally and pictographically by way of depictions on painted cave walls and then in written accounts, there are scores of stories about strange lights and objects in the sky. Throughout the 20th century and into the 21st, as human technology has improved, we've been able to better document and disseminate information about these sightings. Over the next two episodes, we will have a look at unidentified flying objects, more commonly called UFOs. In this first episode, we'll take a brief look at the phenomena itself, the stigma surrounding it, and recent admissions by governmental officials of the existence of these objects. As well, we'll peek at some of the stories from right here in Canada that we haven't already covered. There are more than a thousand reports per year and the database of reports in Canada alone is massive. You are listening to Dark Poutine episode 218, UFOs part one, Canadian reports, research and disclosure. There's so much to talk about regarding UFOs in Canada, I feel like I should dedicate a new weekly podcast just to this subject alone. But Dark Poutine Supernatural Circumstances and my other projects keep me pretty busy, so I don't think that's going to happen. 
That said, ever since I was knee-high to a grasshopper, I've been fascinated by things paranormal. I would not say I'm a believer, even though I personally have seen something in the sky that I could not explain. More on that in episode two. You're still pretty much knee-high to a grasshopper, Mike. What are you, for two? <laughs> something like that. With the renewed interest in space exploration, which includes space tourism, and plans evolving to colonize both Mars and the moon involving controversial billionaires like Elon Musk, whose mom is Canadian, by the way, we as a species seem to be looking to the skies more and more. As we explore, the possibility of life on other planets, even within our own solar system, has become more and more likely. The truth, to coin a phrase, is out there. Recently, in a discussion on the CBC radio call-in show Cross Country Checkup, Canadian astronaut and first Canadian commander of the International Space Station, Chris Hadfield, had some interesting things to say about UFOs. Hadfield, a former pilot for the Royal Canadian Air Force and the U.S. Navy, admitted to having seen odd things, but stopped far short of belief in alien life. He said, quote, Obviously, I've seen countless things in the sky I don't understand. But to see something in the sky that you don't understand, then to immediately conclude that it's intelligent life from another solar system is the height of foolishness and lack of logic. But definitively, up to this point, we have found no evidence of life anywhere except Earth, and we're looking. It's intriguing, and it's right on the brink between reality and science fiction and fantasy. And so, it's all really fun to think about. End quote. We have covered UFO-related stories here on Dark Poutine before. In episode 60, we learned of Granger Taylor, who disappeared in November of 1980, claiming he was off to meet up with aliens. His body was later found. It's unknown whether or not he ever met those aliens. In episode 67, we heard about the 1967 Falcon Lake UFO incident in Manitoba, as related by rockhound Stephen McCulloch, who claimed he'd had a direct encounter with a strange craft which left him burned. In episode 150, we covered the sighting of an object also in 1967, first over Quebec, and that ended up in the waters of Shag Harbor, Nova Scotia, only minutes later, just down the road from where I grew up. Canada's centennial, 1967, was a really busy year for UFOs, and part of the celebrations included construction of a UFO landing pad in St. Paul, Alberta. It's still there if you want to visit, as is the adjacent UFO Tourist Information Center, to welcome those off-world visitors. I personally would like to believe that beings from other planets, galaxies, dimensions are out there, and we will eventually make contact with them. But I'm not yet convinced that we have. Discussions about the reality of UFOs have been legitimized by people in authority at various levels of government here in Canada and in other countries across the globe as something worth investigating. Canada and many of those other nations have, over the years, made available records of reports of UFOs. The United States, however, has, until recently, denied the existence of unidentified flying objects, or that they are something that is not easily explained. The acronym UFO has, for a variety of reasons, fallen out of favor. The term now being popularized is Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, or UAP, the change comes most likely to distance official reports from the term UFO that tends to invoke the laughable little green beings in a flying saucer from another planet. I will use the terms UFO and UAP interchangeably throughout these episodes. UFOs got rebranded. They did because they had a really bad name. 
Yeah. People thought if I hear the word UFO, that means little green people. And yeah. uh, then that means if you say the word UFO, you're crazy. Yeah. Being a marketer, I found this stuff fascinating. Like, right. Yeah. Like actually, you know, it, it got a bad name. We have to change the name. Exactly. Right? I yeah. actually like unidentified aerial phenomena more because yeah. it could, it's not saying that it is a specific object that people are seeing from another planet. Yeah. It is something that is a phenomenon. So it could be weather. It could be a meteor. It could be birds. It could be hostile countries, weaponized machinery. Exactly. Right. All of those things. Eminent Canadian ufologist Chris Rutowski, who we'll be interviewing in the next episode, says in his book, The Canadian UFO Report, that the first UFO sighting in our country was documented in 1663 by Jesuit missionaries. They were ministering to the indigenous peoples of New France. They claimed to have witnessed, with mixed feelings of awe and terror, a fireball hurtling across the sky that later exploded with a loud boom. They likened what they saw to, quote, fiery serpents in the sky, and these were, quote, intertwined in the form of the caduceus, and for those of you who don't know, the caduceus is the traditional symbol of Hermes and features two snakes winding around an often winged staff. It's often used as a symbol of medicine, especially here in the West, despite its ancient and consistent associations with trade, liars, thieves, eloquence, negotiation, alchemy, and wisdom. According to the site pararesearchers.org, dedicated to things paranormal in Ontario, Another early documented UFO sighting in Canada came in 1791. The Quebec Gazette wrote that on the 17th of December, 1791, at about 5 o'clock in the evening, quote, a globe of fire appearing to the eye the size of a 48-pound cannonball was observed in the sky coming from the northeast, disappearing in its perpendicular descent above St. Paul's Bay after bursting with an explosion, end quote. These two sightings were more likely to have been meteorites that exploded on entry into the atmosphere than some controlled technology. Yeah, and this is a good example of the term UFO. Mm -hmm. So back then, they didn't know about meteorites. Sure. So well, or not as much. Or, or not as much, yeah. or, or it wasn't everywhere. So now we know, but back then it would have been an unidentified flying object that they saw. Yeah, right. Uh, but if you can identify it, you have written here, it's an IFO, which is an identified flying object. <laughs> yeah, look, Air Transat Flight 429. <laughs> IFO. <laughs> Another early report comes from near Liverpool, Nova Scotia, as documented by Simeon Perkins, a diarist, merchant, and politician from the area. Simeon held many positions in the township of Liverpool, including Colonel of the Militia, Justice of the Peace, and Magistrate. He represented Queen's County in the Nova Scotia House of Assembly from 1765 to 1768 and from 1770 to 1799. In an entry dated October 12, 1796, Perkins wrote, quote, A strange story is going that a fleet of ships have been seen in the air in some part of the Bay of Fundy. Mr. Darrow is lately from there by land. I inquired of him. He says that they were said to be seen at New Minas at one Mr. Ratchford's by a girl about sunrise and that the girl being frightened called out and that two men that were in the house went out and saw the same sight, being 15 ships and a man forward of them with his hand stretched out. The ships made to the eastward 
They were so near that the people saw their sides and ports. The story did not obtain universal credit, but some people believed it. My own opinion is that it was only in imagination as the clouds at sunrise might make some such appearance, which, being improved by imagination, might be all they saw. End quote. Sorry for the old English, but that's the way Simeon wrote it. Uh, you know what I think it could have been? Mm -hmm. Have you seen that photograph by a guy named David Morris? I have. So it's a tanker floating over the water on the Cornish coast. So it, if you look at the photo... Put, and put it in the, in the notes. Yeah. yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. But if you look in the photo, look at the photo, it looks like it's floating like a hundred feet in the air. Yeah, and it's just a snapshot by a photographer who was going for a walk. Yeah. So essentially what it is, it's a meteorological phenomena mm -hmm. called a superior mirage. A superior mirage. Not an inferior mirage, it's a superior mirage. Right. So it happens when warm air is low over cold water, cold air, and then refraction bends light towards the cold air. This means that, you know, if you're on the shoreline, the light is bent, so... It makes it look like the ship is hovering over the water. It's really cool. Mm -hmm. it, happen, it happens in the Arctic a lot, but occasionally uh, when you're getting different um, um, uh, temperatures of air, you can, you can see it. That's really cool. And, and I'm sure it's probably going to happen now more with global warming as the air warms and places yeah. like that. And more cameras. More cameras. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> But it, you can see a mirage on the highway when you're driving sometimes way ahead of you. And that would be an inferior mirage where the, there's like a little mirror bit in the heat of the summer. Yeah, or it looks like some water. Yeah, right? yeah exactly. Because it's the sky being reflected. Yeah. There were continued reports of odd, unexplained things in the skies over Canada throughout the rest of the 18th and into the 19th century. The federal government's website, Library and Archives Canada, has a detailed database of UFO sightings, but the site is notoriously difficult to navigate, and the search is really clunky. You must know exactly what you're searching for to find anything of interest other than the more widely known accounts. Their webpage, Timeline for UFOs, The Search for the Unknown, indicates that although there had been numerous reports of sightings in the Canadian press since the turn of the 20th century, the government had only taken, quote, casual notice of these incidents until 1947, oddly, the same year as the Roswell incident. After that time, various governmental departments began taking voluntary submissions. Each record collected contains the sighting, the location in the sky, witness statements, name and occupation of witnesses, and a credibility assessment. Hmm. Open-minded people in Canada's scientific community became interested in researching whether the seemingly fantastical vehicular technology witnessed during some of these sightings was physically possible. In 1950 came the creation of Project Magnet at Shirley's Bay, Ontario. It was developed at the insistence of a man named Wilbert Brockhouse-Smith, a senior radio engineer for Transport Canada's Broadcast and Measurements section. According to the Project Magnet entry on the Library and Archives Canada website, Smith wanted to, quote, make use of a laboratory and the department's field facilities in a study of unidentified flying objects and the physical principles connected to them. Smith spearheaded Project Magnet with the purpose of studying, among other occurrences, magnetic phenomena which he believed would open up a new and useful technology. The goals of Project Magnet were fueled by the concepts of geomagnetism and the belief 
that it may be possible to use and manipulate the Earth's magnetic field as a propulsion method for vehicles. Tests conducted by Smith were reported in November 1951, and they stated that sufficient energy was abstracted from one of Earth's fields to operate a voltmeter at approximately 50 milliwatts. Smith believed he was on the, quote, track of something that may prove to be the introduction to a new technology, end quote. Smith believed that there was a correlation between his studies and investigations into UFOs. Quote, the existence of a different technology is borne out by the investigations which are being carried on at the present time in relation to flying saucers. I feel that the correlation between our basic theory and the available information on saucers checks too closely to be mere coincidence. End quote. Smith explained that most UFO sightings fit into two general types. Quote, those about which we know something and those about which we know very little. End quote. In 1952, the reports of UFOs became so frequent that authorities decided they'd have a closer look and developed a questionnaire to be filled out with every report. Our federal police force, the RCMP, were the natural front line for reports of unidentified flying objects. In a summary of 1952 sighting reports, Smith noted common significant characteristics of UFOs. Quote, they are 100 feet or more in diameter. They can travel at speeds of several thousand miles per hour. They can reach altitudes well above those which should support conventional aircraft or balloons. And ample power and force seem to be available for all required maneuvers. In his closing, Smith stated, quote, Taking these factors into account, it is difficult to reconcile this performance with the capabilities of our technology, and unless the technology of some terrestrial nation is much more advanced than is generally known, we are forced to the conclusion that the vehicles are probably extraterrestrial, in spite of our prejudices to the contrary, end quote. Throughout the 1950s, the Canadian Defence Research Board, DRB, conducted research into reported flying saucers near North Bay, Ontario. I found reference to a 1950s sighting in the North Bay area on the website pararesearchers.org. It is listed as having occurred on August 30, 1954. The entry reads, quote, Sergeant Dirtle saw a brilliant circular flying object across Lake Nipissing toward the Royal Canadian Air Force Base. An oblong canister was hanging down from a central section, which supported a long cone with a spinning globe on top. When it tilted, the witness was able to observe a regulator-like device inside the machine through a vertical lighted slit. Six brilliant appendages, which looked like necklaces, were hanging from the craft. Dirtle woke up four Air Force men who observed the object spiraling away. End quote. Project Magnet was cancelled in 1954. It was not clear what happened and after being asked numerous times, in 1957, W.B. Smith recorded a statement in which he talked about the reasons for the project's cancellation. Here's some audio of Smith's explanation. Unfortunately, the program was plagued by well-meaning but misguided journalists who were looking for spectacular copy or copy which could be turned to political account. To such an extent, that both those who were working on the project and the Department of Transport found themselves in an embarrassed position. Consequently, when the Project Magnet report was made and permission sought to extend the scope of the investigation through federal financial support, the decision was finally made in 1954 
that this would not be advisable in the face of the publicity from which the whole project had suffered. Project Magnet was officially dropped by the Department of Transport in October 1954. Although the department indicated its willingness to permit the continued use of laboratory facilities, provided this could be done at no cost to the public treasury, the project has been continuing under these conditions, and to this extent may be said to have gone underground. The government of Canada are not participants in the project and not in any way responsible for its conclusions. Of course, the media, hungry for stories of little green men, overshadowed Smith's important, real scientific study and left the government agencies red-faced and unwilling to fund Project Magnet any further. This seems to be the story throughout the history of UFO studies, with claims of alien encounters and abductions muddying the waters and creating bias against the study of UAPs. In the same statement, however, Smith went on to provide some of Project Magnet's findings which were too much for some to swallow. Here's some more of W.B. Smith's fantastic statement. The conclusions reached by Project Magnet and contained in the official report were based on a rigid statistical analysis of sighting reports and were as follows. There is a 91% probability that at least some of the sightings are of real objects of unknown origin. There is about 60% probability that these objects are alien vehicles, that is, alien meaning not of earthly fabrication. In the conclusion to his statement, Smith goes on to speak about the continued work of Project Magnet, now off the books. He cites communications with others all over the world who claim to have had sightings and knowledge about UFOs and their technology. He indicated he continued to work on technology using manipulations of magnetism, which he believed one day would, quote, take us to the stars. From the Wikipedia article on Project Magnet, quote, Smith believed UFOs were linked to psychic phenomena and believed himself to be in contact with extraterrestrial beings who communicated to him through telepathy. Smith wrote several articles for Topside, the publication of the Ottawa New Sciences Club, which he founded, outlining the philosophy of the Space Brothers with whom he claimed to be in contact. The articles were later collected and published posthumously in 1969 under the title The Boys from Topside. I'd love to get my hands on some of Smith's findings and his book, but have been unsuccessful so far. And we'll take a break right here. And we are back. Matthew, what are your interstellar thoughts <laughs> so far? So... I actually believe that there's probably billions of intelligent um, individual lives out there. There has to be. I mean, there's, there's just so many planets and, yeah. and the universe is so large. But I don't necessarily believe that any of them have ever visited us. Right. Right. Um, I, I don't know if that's. I don't know. We, we both don't know. We don't know that for sure. We don't, whether we believe it or not isn't even important. Yeah, I, I think it's unlikely, but that's okay. Mm -hmm. and, and they've always fascinated me, and I love the stories, right? And, right. And there's some imagination there, but... Um, sure, and it, I watched a documentary very recently where a scientist worked out um, the likelihood using a, a very complex formula of planets possible 
mm-hmm. in the universe, in the known universe that could possibly, they are within the Goldilocks zone, which is right. uh, where Earth is. Uh, he said there were, I believe, 100 billion trillion possible <laughs> places where yeah. life could exist. So the fact that we are arrogant enough to think we're the, the only people in the universe is kind of silly. Well, when I was a teenager, I actually used to give money to SETI. Yeah. And because I was fascinated with it and I wanted to like give a big finger to planet Earth going, how dare you think we're the only ones, right? right? SETI is search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Yes, it is. Carl Sagan had a lot to do with it as well. I was involved in having my computer act as folding project for oh, SETI. Did you? That's yeah. Great. Yeah. They, they thought, hey, let's use everyone's. Yeah. Um, crowdsource people's computer power yeah to do some calculation Mm -hmm. and you also mentioned voyager one yeah i love this so Mm -hmm. voyager one it's the it's now sort of the man-made thing that's furthest away from earth ever yeah Yeah. it's way out there and it was launched um i don't know when it was launched but it's um there's a golden record on it yeah it was launched in the 70s yeah so golden record on it Mm-hmm. Um, and Carl Sagan actually helped develop what should be on that record. Cool. And it had um, 115 images and a variety of natural sounds like surf, wind, thunder, lots of music um, from different parts of the world, including Chuck Berry's Johnny Be Good. Right. <laughs> and um, uh, greetings. And, and what I find really interesting is uh, the president at the time, Jimmy Carter, mm-hmm. actually wrote, there's a plaque on on it that says... This is a present from a small, distant world, a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours. So that's the president of the United States sending a message to potential life forms out there. And if you dig deeply into this uh, Voyager 1 record, the golden records, they are made of gold because gold is probably going to last the longest out there. Um... What's interesting, they also, what's interesting, they also give uh, a description of the machine that uh, some alien life form would require mm-hmm. to use this. Yeah, and coordinates uh, of our solar system, of mm-hmm. where Earth is. Yeah, it's all very fascinating. I don't know, like, somebody might look at it and say, oh, look, it's a piece of junk. <laughs> yeah, like, like <laughs> we don't know what a phonograph is. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Even though publicly the United States seemed uninterested in UFO phenomena and Canada had turned its back on W.B. Smith, as the Cold War with Russia ramped up over 1959 and 1960, the two countries teamed up to institute a joint reporting system of UFOs. The service reporting system was created to, quote, extend the early warning coverage for the defense of North America and to extend the reporting of vital intelligence during peacetime, end quote. Service, C-I-R-V-I-S, stands for Communications Instructions for Reporting Vital Intelligence Sightings. Over the ensuing decades, the service project captured numerous reports of sightings, including a major event in Clan Lake, Northwest Territories, in 1960. According to the Library and Archives Canada website, quote, on June 22, 1960, an airplane dropped two campers off at Clan Lake. 
About 20 minutes after the plane left, the two reported hearing a loud noise similar to an airplane. As the noise grew louder, the campers looked to the sky but saw nothing. Seconds later, however, an object fell from the sky and crashed into the water. When it hit the surface, the object began to rotate, causing a spray of water around it. There was no steam to indicate that the object was hot. According to the campers, the object was approximately four to six feet wide, with spokes coming out of it like arms. As it began to slow down, a rush of water met the campers on the shore. Finally, the object sank. The campers rushed to the spot in the water with their canoe and saw that the reeds in the water appeared burnt, and an area approximately 20 feet by 60 feet appeared to be cut up. Poking around with their paddles, they found a channel in the bottom of the lake that corresponded with a cut path of grass. The campers, however, could not locate the object with their canoe paddles. A statement of one of the campers' sighting was filed with the RCMP on July 18th, almost one month after the event. The report states that the observer was well-known in this country and is considered very reliable, end quote. It isn't clear why it took a month prior to the reporting of the sighting, but when the RCMP attended the site, they noted, quote, it appeared that an object did land on the east side of the lake. An area of water about 12 feet wide by 40 feet long was completely clear of reeds and grass. The water in this corridor also appeared to be deeper, end quote. Further investigations, and there were a few, indicated that the water level in the lake had dropped a foot. No radiation was present, nor were police able to find any physical evidence of an object. The RCMP involved the Royal Canadian Air Force who determined without any real investigation that the object was most likely a meteorite. Although that was contrary to the eyewitness reports, and again, there was zero physical evidence left behind to prove any claims. In September of 1960, the matter was closed without resolution. Maybe it was like an engine that fell off of an airplane or something, or, or a piece of, air, of aircraft that got into like a good spin before it hit the water. But the problem with that is, is did, they did so much investigation looking for pieces of things and did not find a single thing. What, with their paddles? No, no, the RCMP were there numerous times digging in the, in the area. They were, there were people there who were forensically looking I at I think this. we should crowdsource X-ray and fly a plane over it, I bet you we'd find like a piece of, a piece of airplane junk that fell off. Oh, maybe. I don't know. Even though there are many credible reports of UAPs, they seem to have been overshadowed by those of hoaxers, crackpots, and people suffering psychotic breaks. Culturally, in North America at least, the term UFO, or unidentified flying object, has been thought to be the realm of weirdos and whack jobs evoking scenes of flying saucers captained by alien beings, abductions, animal mutilations, crop circles, and perish the thought invasive bodily probes by almond-eyed gray creatures who communicate telepathically. We won't talk about those too much here. Tales like these, some extremely spurious, of these kinds of direct, incredible encounters have for years tainted the discussions of actual sightings of phenomena in the skies above us. People have been afraid to come forward for fear of being labeled a nut job, so many sightings go underreported if not mentioned at all. Some conspiracy theorists believe that governments have played down these sightings for decades, afraid of the ramifications that disclosure of the existence of UFOs would foster mass hysteria and fear. Discovering that we are not alone would definitely shake things up, especially regarding some widely held dogmatic religious beliefs. 
Even some of those who consider themselves scientists are not open-minded enough to admit that there is the possibility that there is more to learn. Over and over, it has been proven that things of science fiction often become science fact. Take, for example, the power of the smartphone that you have in your pocket. Not so long ago, had you told someone that, that you had a device of this kind and told them all that it could do, you'd have been locked up for a kook. In fact, the United States government has had a hand in minimizing, spreading disinformation about, explaining away, or outright covering up reports of UFOs over the years. This has fostered the belief that if a person claims to have seen something, their cheese has slid off their cracker. The supposed 1947 crash of a UFO at Roswell, New Mexico, was officially said to have been a weather balloon, while some of those who were present claimed it was something far different. UFO reports have been put down, sometimes ridiculously, to swamp gas, flocks of birds, ball lightning, and other strange weather occurrences. U.S. officials have often used ridicule as a tool to swat away claims of UFOs. Nowhere was this more evident than in the case of the triangular set of lights seen over Phoenix, Arizona on March 13, 1997. These lights were observed and reported by thousands of people between 7.30 p.m. and 10.30 p.m., in a space of about 480 kilometers from the Nevada line through Phoenix to the edge of Tucson. The USAF said that A-10 Warthog fighter aircraft in the area were responsible as they had been dropping flares during exercises that night, but scientists and other observers looking at some of the photographic and video evidence have said there is no way flares would have behaved in such a manner. Shortly after the lights appeared, Arizona Governor Fife Symington III held a press conference, stating that they, quote, found who was responsible. He proceeded to make light of the situation by bringing his aide on stage dressed in an alien costume. However, in a 2007 interview with the Daily Courier in Prescott, Symington changed his tune. He said, quote, it was enormous and inexplicable. Who knows where it came from? A lot of people saw it, and I saw it too. It was dramatic, and it couldn't have been flares because it was too symmetrical. It had a geometric outline, a constant shape, end quote. Probably the most damaging initiative undertaken by the U.S. government in debunking UFOs came by way of the now infamous Project Blue Book. Project Blue Book called UFOs a problem, and rather than actually investigating, went about explaining away, often without hard evidence, UFO sightings. Blue Book was active from March 1952 until its termination in December 1969, collecting 12,618 UFO reports, which they analyzed and called closed. As a result of the Condon Report, which concluded that the study of UFOs was unlikely to yield major scientific discoveries, and a review of the report by the National Academy of Sciences, Project Blue Book was terminated in 1969. The U.S. Air Force supplied the following summary of its investigations. 1. No UFO reported, investigated, and evaluated by the Air Force was ever an indication of a threat to our national security. 2. There was no evidence submitted to or discovered by the Air Force that sightings categorized as unidentified represented technological developments or principles beyond the range of modern scientific knowledge. And 3. There was no evidence indicating that sightings categorized as unidentified were extraterrestrial vehicles. It was after the release of the Condon Report that UAP sightings and investigations became more a fringe interest. All of the misinformation worked. 
Sadly, throughout the next five decades, the masses lost interest in UFOs as a phenomena, and the idea of UAPs became a bit of a joke. TV shows like The X-Files and movies like Independence Day, Mars Attacks, District 9 and a terrible remake of War of the Worlds have kept the idea of UFOs in the conversation. But again, some of those efforts are so fantastical and crammed with garbage science, it leaves the average watcher cold and not really able to consider the real possibility of UFOs at all. There was a huge shift in 2017, however. The interest in UAPs has increased in a big way since the release of three spectacular UAP videos involving United States Navy pilots and sailors on the aircraft carriers USS Nimitz and Theodore Roosevelt from Wikipedia. On December 16, 2017, the New York Times reported on the incidents and published three videos termed FLIR, F-L-I-R, Gimbal, and GoFast purporting to show encounters by jets from Nimitz and Theodore Roosevelt with unusually shaped fast-moving aircraft. The reports became subject to fevered speculation by UFO investigators. Those stories have been criticized by journalism professor Keith Kluwer as a curious narrative that appears to be driven by thinly sourced and slanted reporting. According to Kluwer, cursory attention has been given to the most likely prosaic explanations. Instead, coverage has, for the most part, taken a quizzical, mysterious frame that plays off the catchy UFO tag in the headline, end quote. The videos featuring cockpit display data and infrared imagery, along with audio communications between the pursuing pilots, were initially provided to the press by Louis Elizondo, the former head of Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, the Department of Defense's investigatory program. Elizondo had resigned from the Pentagon in October 2017 to protest government secrecy and opposition to the investigation. Stating in a resignation letter to the Defense Secretary, James Mattis, that the program was not being taken seriously. According to Wired Magazine, a copy of one of the videos had been online in a UFO forum since at least 2007. In September 2019, a Pentagon spokesman confirmed that the released videos were made by naval aviators and that they are, quote, part of a larger issue of an increased number of training range incursions by unidentified aerial phenomena in recent years. On April 27, 2020, the Pentagon formally released the three videos. You can watch those videos via a link in our show notes. So this one's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think that this craft was actually being tested by the Navy yep. prior to a patent application. Mm -hmm. And then the cat kind of got out of the bag, right? Yeah. So put on your show notes um, for, for, for the listeners here. There's a U.S. patent number US 101-4453-2B2. And it's a description. The description is a craft using an inertial mass reduction device comprises of an inner resonant cavity wall and outer resonant cavity and a microwave emitters. And when you look into the details of that thing, mm -hmm. you can be like, yeah, maybe this thing could move like that. Yeah. And the link's really interesting. Like there's, there's so much, like there's other stuff there. Like um, uh, some of the other patents are space vehicle propelled uh, by the pressure of inflationary vacuum state. Mm -hmm. Another one, particle acceleration mechanisms. The next one is the high energy electromagnetic field generator. And my fave, 
I have no idea what this means, but strange quark matter attached to string cosmology in FRW space time. Yeah. So there's a lot of like really advanced. So my point is there's a lot of really advanced stuff out there, right? That's mm -hmm. being tested before patents. That's often sort of part government funding, part private company patents. Right. And, you know, uh, your average Joe or Jane who's flying a jet won't necessarily be briefed on this because it's in development. Yeah, there there were more. It was more than just people flying a jet that were involved in the investigation into yeah, those videos and other stuff. Yeah, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, who knows what it was? It was at this point that is definitely would those things will qualify as a UAP until somebody says, "Yeah, that was ours." Yeah, that was ours. Now the patents released, we, we can tell you about it, right? Exactly, yeah. and maybe that won't ever happen. Mm. Who knows? Uh, but. It's it, what I found interesting about these things that you investigated, these particular patents and those kind of things, is this is what W.B. Smith was working on during Project Magnet yeah. in the 1950s. Yeah, read about, like, read some of those. It's literally using that technology that they were imagining at the time. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, so it's, it's super fascinating that uh, a Canadian was actually working on that stuff 70 years ago. We didn't just do the Canada arm. No, <laughs> no. And I, I, I'm very curious about W.B. Smith. So I'm going to be asking Chris Rutowski a little bit more about him because um, he wrote about him in one of his, in a number. Rutowski has written about him in a number of his writings, mm -hmm. including books. So maybe I'll be able to have a little more discussion with him because I'm really curious about the science that this yeah. guy was, yeah. had discovered or was working on. And then the Canadian government kind of said, well, we're embarrassed because people are talking about little green men. So we're not going to fund your project anymore. Even though he went ahead, you know, with other funding. So yeah, we have to remember the government isn't necessarily the smartest group of people. In February of 2020, the United States Navy confirmed that in response to inquiries, intelligence briefings presented by naval intelligence officials have been provided to members of Congress. With the lid blown off, the United States decided to release through the Office of the Director of National Intelligence a report titled Preliminary Assessment Unidentified Aerial Phenomena. In May of 2021, just ahead of the release of the U.S. report, the Canadian Minister of National Defence at the time, Harjit Singh Sejan, was officially briefed. CTV News' Daniel Otis reporting received a copy of the five-page brief titled Unidentified Aerial Phenomena, UAP, and Other Documents Through an Access to Information Request. Although short, I guess that's why it's called a brief, the document is packed full of interesting information. The report admits that there are approximately 1,000 UFO sightings in Canada each year. The Library and Archives Canada, LAC, collection of UFO reporting constitutes approximately 9,000 separate documents. UFO slash UAP reporting in Canada historically is under the domain of several organizations with different interests and priorities, including Transport Canada, Nav Canada, our National Air Navigation Service provider, National Research Council, RCMP, and the Department of National Defense. The document also cited easily discoverable information were one to dig hard enough. The U.S. report released on June 25, 2021 was a little more interesting. From the document, quote, 
This report provides an overview for policymakers of the challenges associated with characterizing the potential threat by UAP while also providing a means to develop relevant processes, policies, technologies, and training for the U.S. military and other U.S. government personnel if they encounter UAP, so as to enhance the intelligence community's ability to understand the threat, end quote. The executive summary of the report states, quote, The limited amount of high-quality reporting on unidentified aerial phenomena, UAP, hampers our ability to draw firm conclusions about the nature or intent of UAP. In a limited number of incidents, UAP reportedly appeared to exhibit unusual flight characteristics. These observations could be the result of sensor errors, spoofing, or observer misperception and require additional rigorous analysis. There are probably multiple types of UAP requiring different explanations based on the range of appearances and behaviors described in the available reporting. This next bit is a reversal of what they said previously after the release of the Condon report. UAP clearly pose a safety of flight issue and may pose a challenge to U.S. national security. Consistent consolidation of reports from across the federal government, standardized reporting, increased collection and analysis, and a streamlined process for screening all such reports against a broad range of relevant U.S. government data will allow for a more sophisticated analysis of UAP that is likely to deepen our understanding. End quote. The report goes on to admit that there are emergent, consistent patterns in reporting that a handful of UAP appear to demonstrate advanced technology. Quote, in 18 incidents described in 21 reports, observers reported unusual UAP movement patterns or flight characteristics. Some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speed without discernible means of propulsion. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency energy associated with UAP sightings, end quote. This appears to be progress, at least toward investigation of these events, and an admission that even the most advanced nation in the world remains in the dark about what exactly is being observed in these reports. The report continues, explaining that UAP probably lack a single explanation. No kidding. They boil the sightings down to five categories. Airborne clutter. These objects include birds, balloons, recreational unmanned aerial vehicles, UAV, or airborne debris like plastic bags that muddle a scene and affect an operator's ability to identify true targets, such as an enemy aircraft. Natural atmospheric phenomena, which include ice crystals, moisture, and thermal fluctuations that may register on some infrared radar systems. U.S. government or industry developmental programs. Some UAP observations could be attributable to developments and classified programs by U.S. entities. We are unable to confirm, however, that these systems accounted for any of the UAP reports we collected. Foreign adversary systems. Some UAP may be technologies deployed by China, Russia, another nation, or a non-governmental entity. These may be, perhaps advanced hypersonic missiles. We've seen reports of those recently. Other, although most UAP described in our data set probably remain unidentified due to limited data or challenges to collection processing or analysis, we may require additional scientific knowledge to successfully collect on, analyze, and characterize some of them. 
we would group such objects in this category pending scientific advances that allowed us to better understand them. The UAPTF intends to focus additional analysis on the small number of cases where a UAP appeared to display unusual flight characteristics or signature management. It's obviously the other category that stands out to those interested in UFOs and things paranormal. The report concludes with a commitment toward continued investigation of these events in the interest of U.S. national security. Good for them. One would think that these videos and releases of these reports, as well as confessions of encounters by numerous individuals in official positions, mostly military and governmental, would have taken off and this conversation would have become very loud. But the involvement of other sketchy individuals in the conversation still has people looking askance at the UAP conversation. Now, I'm not saying this guy's sketchy, but take, for example, rock star Blink-182's Tom DeLonge. He was involved in that initial leak of the Navy's videos to the press in 2017. In 2015, DeLonge founded an entertainment company called To The Stars, Inc., which in 2017 he merged into a larger To The Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences. Aside from that entertainment division, the new company had aerospace and science divisions dedicated to ufology and the fringe science proposals of To The Stars co-founder Harold Puthoff. In a 2018 financial statement filed with the SEC, the company reported that it had, quote, incurred losses from operations and has accumulated a deficit on June 30, 2018 of $37,432,000. These factors raised doubt about the company's ability to continue as a going concern. In 2019, the company produced the History Channel television show Unidentified Inside America's UFO Investigation about the USS Nimitz UFO incident, which also features DeLonge. Even though DeLonge seems sincere and his heart appears to be in the right place, is his involvement actually detrimental to the conversation? To the Stars Academy of Arts and Sciences seems to be defunct and the website is now more shop selling media apparel and DeLonge's science fiction novels. Canadian journalist Daniel Otis seems unimpressed with Canada's response. Reporting often on UAPs for various news organizations, including CTV and Vice, Otis seems to be just one voice crying in the wilderness. Otis' most recent report on the CTV news website is an excellent read and we'll link to it in the show notes. However, his article for Vice and Motherboard, which is dated November 29, 2021, is telling of his real opinion. The title of the article is Credible UFO Reports Are Being Ignored, Declassified Canadian Government Documents Revealed. The subtitle of the article reads even more sensational. Unlike in the U.S., UFO reports in Canada pretty much get shit-canned, declassified files obtained by Motherboard Show, end quote. The article cites an encounter that took place on September 20, 2016, from the Civil Aviation Daily Occurrence Reporting System, KDORS, Report 2016 P1783, a Jazz de Havilland DHC-8-301 from Prince Rupert to Vancouver at F-250 reported overtaking another aircraft with a steady red light, approximately 3,000 feet above them, heading in the same direction. No other aircraft was known to be in that vicinity or observed on radar. Not much detail, but the encounter was far more involved. Otis wrote, quote, According to declassified documents acquired by Motherboard, the RCAF reviewed radar data but found nothing near the plane. 
Within an hour, reports had been faxed to the Canadian government's Transportation Department and the Air Force's Secretive Intelligence, Surveillance, and Reconnaissance Division in Winnipeg. There appears to have been no further follow-up. I don't dispute they saw the strange light, aviation consultant and former RCAF fighter pilot John Jock Williams told Motherboard, and it may or may not be of strange origin. Who knows? But all I know is I'm not impressed with the level of investigation. Otis goes on to cite further examples in the article, which again we'll link to in the show notes. My question is, why doesn't Canada take these reports more seriously? We sort of alluded to it in the last break that we had there where we were talking, that the government isn't necessarily the smartest group of individuals uh, on the planet. However, um, it seems like the government of Canada, although they are collecting this stuff and then passing it off to Rutowski, they're they're not really doing anything with what they're collecting. They're just collecting it. What would they do, though, in a way? I think maybe some of it's like, okay, well... People have seen some things, but Mm -hmm. nothing's happened and we have a lot of other crap to deal with. Exactly. Maybe it's that or... Could be. Or just maybe passing it on on like that is, here you go, try to figure it out. Yeah, you figure it out. Because we never will. (laughs) Yeah, we don't have time. I'm looking forward to next week's episode when I speak to Canadian ufologist Chris Rutowski and... Um, as well, I'm really looking forward to sharing listener stories, and there are some really cool ones that we've gathered, one of which is is some fantastic audio of a listener's father-in-law who's talking about an event that happened to him or a sighting that mm-hmm. he had, and he's a super fascinating guy who I f- fell in love with, so you will too. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Matthew and I are going to share our own experience of traveling to the back gate of Area 51. I have another story to tell. You do? My friend Corey, may mm-hmm. he rest in peace, mm-hmm. was Chris Hadfield Barber. Really? Yeah. That's kind of cool. Yeah. Chris Hadfield has a very fancy mustache. He does. Yeah, he keeps that thing really well trimmed. He's got an excellent mustache. Yeah, Corey trimmed it. Well, there you go. <laughs> so Matthew has, Matthew's friend, has, who is no longer with us, has trimmed Chris Hadfield's mustache. Mustache. Well, there you go. There's always connections. Always. Here here in Canada. One one degree of separation. Exactly. And that's it for Dark Poutine episode 218, UFOs part one, Canadian reports, research, and disclosure. Well, you can say that, but I'll, I'll just do this. That's right. It's time for voicemails. You can leave us a message at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARK-PTN. We'd love to hear from you. Let's see who called us this week. Wow, we had a bunch of phone calls this week, and obviously we can't get to everybody, but thank you everyone who called. Um, and some people call more than once, which is crazy. Like, I love it. They want to talk to us that much. It's very cool. So let's listen to our first voicemail. Hey, guys, I definitely don't have to take a shit in my hat, but I was just wondering if you guys would do the Maddie, like Madeline Scott, like, because that's a mystery that that's an unsolved murder case. 
And I was just wanting to know, like, all the details because you guys do some amazing work. And I've been listening for about, like, six months now. And, oh, yeah, my name's Hannah, and I'm from B.C. I was just wondering if you guys could probably maybe do something on Madeline Scott. I've been trying to find a documentary or a podcast on her, and I would just love to hear about it. Anyways, keep up the amazing work, guys. Bye. So you are referring to Madison Scott, I do believe, because I don't know of any Madeline Scott. I think Scott. she's mixing up Madeline, yeah, she, Madeline exactly. McCann and Madison Scott. Yeah, that could be what's going on. So Madison Scott is who you're looking for, and we did cover that in episode 100 of the show uh, when I had uh, our other co-host. That was that was um, BM. <laughs> Bowel movement? No, before Matthew. Oh, Okay. <laughs> Anyway, so before Matthew, we covered that in episode 100, and it was our live show at the Rio. So, so yeah, it's Madison Scott that you're probably looking for. Give and it a listen. Yeah, please do. Okay, here's our second voicemail. Let's see who's calling. Hi, Mike and Matt. This is Kate from Orangeville. Um, I'm a Patreon, and I believe, Matt, you think that I'm an Orange Grove grower. So I'm just going to let you go with that. Uh, first off, before I forget, I hope you guys had an awesome time at CrimeCon. Uh, it sounds amazing, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. So I just want to say that I was, uh, I've always said that I was going to leave a voicemail when I caught up with all the episodes, so here it is. Uh, I found Dark Poutine when everyone made the pandemic, and I have to say you guys have been amazing and have really helped me with the grief of losing my father. My dad was an OPP officer, so true true crime was something that I was kind of raised in. Uh, my dad and I would often sit and chat about cases or true crime documentation, doc, documentaries, and when I lost him, I lost that odd comfort of true crime. So Dark Poutine, Mike, Matt, uh, you guys have kind of filled a small part of the hole that was left behind when he when he passed away. I only wish he had been able to listen to the wonderful work you guys do for the victims and the cases. And I think as an officer of the law, he would have really appreciated it. So I've sent you guys some donut money as well to mark my occasion of finally finishing all the the, uh, the episodes. And uh, please get a cinnamon bun in honor of my dad, because that was his favorite treat that I would bring by uh, when we would chat about our true crime stuff. Um, I think that's everything, you guys. Go shit in your hats. I believe that's a compliment in the dark routine world, and have a great one. Bye, guys. Wow. Thank you so much. That that really means a lot. That uh... Sorry you lost your dad. Yeah. Mike and I were talking about Cinnabons in the airport in Las Vegas, actually. Yeah, I was thinking, do Dro I want... We were drooling over them. Do I want to uh, put my pancreas to work <laughs> and have, have a Cinnabon, you know? Yeah, my, my cousin... Um, is an OPP. Okay. And I don't, I haven't asked her if she watch, if she listens to the show yet. Well, she should listen to the show whilst yeah. she's out cruising. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we, I grew up with, um, my friend, my parents had lots of, uh, police officers who were friends in the, uh, town department and the OPP. So mm. yeah, there you go. So, um, we're really glad that we can fill the true crime itch for you. And, uh, again, condolences about your dad. All right, let's listen to our last voicemail for this episode. Hi, guys. My name is Morgan. I'm from uh, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. 
Uh, I also grew up on Vancouver Island, and I recently started listening to you guys' podcast. I absolutely love it. Uh, there's a couple of the cases that you guys have that hit pretty close to home for me, but of course I still love listening to all the information you guys have and such. Um, for instance, like the Kimberly Proctor one, we definitely heard a lot about that when I was growing up, um, and I'm currently listening to the Rena Verk case, which hits very close to home for me. Um, I actually have a few details you guys left out, not to sound rude or anything. Um, when you guys mentioned the, the classmate they found that had asked them for right, he was actually a member of my family, and uh, he was mentally challenged, and the girls had taken advantage of that, and he had actually ended up washing their clothes in the river where they had drowned Rena um, in the hopes of getting rid of all of the evidence that was on them so that they didn't see it when they came home. Uh, just just a little tidbit that I don't know if it was in any, it wasn't in many news stories or anything, but I am very much enjoying listening to you guys' podcast and can't wait to hear more. Thanks. Well, thank you so much. It, thank, you, thank you for that. It's great when, if somebody has first-hand account. Yeah, it, I don't find it rude at no, all. No, it's great. No, I, I like to have more information, and we encourage you if uh, there is something that we neglected to mention, or it's an hour-long podcast, so I can't say everything that happens. That um, case is one that sticks with me. Yeah, Rena Verk, yeah. And, and what the parents did for the the one boy actually mm -hmm. actually forgave him. The restorative justice, yeah. I just, ah, those, that, that, those, her parents just blow me away. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a, it's a really super sad story. So if you haven't listened to our Rena Verk episode yet, uh, go back and do that. It's R-E-E-N-A-V-I-R-K. All right. And I especially love it when uh, people from who, who have been lived on both coasts. She's called. a coast to coast gal, yeah. just like you. Well, he's a, I'm a coast to coast gal as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, my dad grew up on Portland Street in Dartmouth. I've mentioned that I think before, but but yeah, I I loved I loved uh, going to my uncle Bob's house on uh, Portland Street in uncle Dartmouth. Uncle Bob. He lived right next door to the politician, who was a Nova Scotia politician. Rolly Thornhill. What a great name, eh? Rolly Thornhill. Rolly Thornhill. I would get into politics too if my name was Rolly Thornhill. You wouldn't want to roll down a Thornhill though. No. <laughs> anyway, that's it for voicemails. That's it for this week's voicemails. Again, you can leave us one at 1-877-327-5786 or 1-877-DARKPTN. We'd love to hear from you even if it is just to say hi and to tell us to go shit in our hats. If you're stumped for what to chat with us about, a quick story is welcome. So our first patron this week is from Mont Montreal, Quebec. Nice. And her name is Maud S. S. With like Sierra. Maud S. And she's from Montreal. So what does Maud do there in Montreal, Matthew? She runs a media empire. Oh my goodness. Yes. Is it French speaking? Yes. Oh, okay. So she owns most of the television networks. Lampard Media? The French <laughs> network. Yes. Mod Media. Mm hmm Mod Media. There you go. And what, what sort of uh, media does she put out? Like newspapers and 
TV shows and radio. No, it's, it's all digital. All digital. Yeah, That's kind of cool. TV, radio, you know, websites. You know what my uh, actual, what this studio is called? The Dark Poutine Global No, H it's actually H not. It's uh, called good egg studios oh i did not know i that. have goodeggstudios.com and that's that's the name <laughs> oh, of my production company I, I one year and i didn't even know that nope anyway thank you so much maud maud much appreciated uh next up we have christy and christy i can tell where she works from her email address but i am not going to say that okay don't tell me i'm not going to say that and i am also going to say Hey, Matthew, Christy, I don't know where she's from, although I can already tell that from her email address okay. as well, but I'm not going to say. So you tell me, where is she from? Where's Christy from? Muff, Ireland. Muff? Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> it's close to Burnfoot. Yep. Close to Burnfoot? Yeah, in Ireland. Um, Muff. Yeah, it's, it's Northern Ireland. Okay, great. Yeah. Now, what does... <laughs> What does Christy do there in in Muff? Okay, this is an actual company in Muff. Yes. She's the president Okay. of the Muff Diving Club. I was going to say she's not a Muff diver, is she? There's, there's actually, so there's actually a town called Muff in Ireland, and there's actually a Muff Diving Club. Well, there you go. Well, that's... <laughs> That's really unfortunate for Christy. Christy's never going to send money she, again. No, she probably hates our guts right She's now. Probably laughing. Yeah, but, but I—that's what I, I was hope, immediately I where so. I went. My brain went there instantly. You're hilarious. Anyway, uh, thank you so much, Christy, and uh, your muff diving friends. Oh no! <laughs> oh dear! <laughs> Help! I need an adult. Uh, yes. You're the adult. That's that's what it says on my birth certificate. Uh, however, uh, not so much. Next, we have... Uh, okay, let's move on to our donut money donors before we get ourselves into more trouble muff driving. Okay. Yeah. I, I have a question for you. No. Okay. <laughs> you know what I was going to ask. Yes. <laughs> oh, dear. I am so embarrassed right now. Is that, it's not to say no, no. It's just, no, I'm not going to have a conversation. <laughs> okay, I gotcha. Uh, <laughs> uh, so our first Donut Money donor is a good friend to the show, longtime friend, Kathy AC. AC like Lacey. Exactly. And she Hi, says, Kathy. Mike, Matthew, and Steve Bottom Rock. Bone. Yeah, exactly. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. And thank you for uh, telling us how to pronounce your last name because it doesn't look like it should be pronounced like you said. Yeah, you and I have pretty easy names, like Brown with an E. Yes. And Stockton, like there's Stockton, California, like people have heard the word. Although South Asian people here in uh, Surrey right. have called me Michael Brownie a lot. Oh, because I guess they, so they see the E on the end. Oh, that's sweet. Mr. Brownie. I get that a lot. You're a brownie. Yeah. Which is interesting. Uh, but I'm okay with it. I don't correct them. Why bother? Yeah. Why bother? Yeah. So Matthew, even though we know Kathy AC well, mm. where is she from? Do you know? Where is she from? Yes. Middle fart, Denmark. Middle fart yes. in Denmark. Yeah. As opposed to uh, left side fart or right side fart. Right. 
or East Fart. Yeah, M-I-D-D-E-L-F-A-R-T. Well, there you go. M- <laughs> oh, gosh. What does she do in Middle Fart? Well, actually, it was a town that was known for whale hunters. Okay. And they kind of slipped some in between the world wars because it became unfashionable in the 20th century. Sure. But So she is a protector of whales. Good so, for you, so, Kathy. So she's not very popular in Middle Fart. Well, that's too bad for the yeah. people who don't like... Uh, uh, people who protect whales. <laughs> exactly. Uh, next up, we have Kate Trombley, who was our one of our callers earlier, and she says, please treat yourselves to a few cinnamon buns in honor of my dad and our many true crime chats. Thanks, Dark Poutine, for filling the void. Wow. That's great. That's great, Kate. Thank you so much. Now, we know Kate's from Ontario, but what place in Ontario would Kate be from? I think she's from Stratford. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's easy. Stratford-on-Avon? Stratford-upon-Avon. Yeah. Yeah, What does she do there in Stratford? She's a actor. Oh, she's an actor. Yeah. Good for you. Acting is fun. I used to... I used to act and I was terrible at it. So that's why I do this now. Yeah. I saw her in a middle, uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. I thought you were going to say in Middle Fart. No. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That was the, that was the road show. That's they played in Middle Fart. In Middle Fart, Denmark. But anyway, that's great. Um, thank you so much, Kate. And again, we are really appreciative that uh, we are helping to fill the void. And you can fill, we're going to use your donut money to fill the void of our lack of donuts. Cinema, we actually have to buy cinnamon buns. I want to go to cinema, Cinnabon actually after we're done. Are there any, are there any in Canada still? I think there's one over at the mall. If there's one in the mall, as soon as you enter the mall, you can smell it. Yeah, I think there's one. You can just follow your nose to the Cinnabon. Yeah. Okay. Let's do it. Okay. Uh, next up, we have Adam Grofsick, and Adam says he's from San Diego, donuts from San Diego. Go drop a schmoozle in your squoozle. <laughs> I don't know what that is, but Adam Grofschick, thank San, you so much. San Diego is a nice town. It's beautiful. Yeah. It's a big Navy town. I, I visited some of the naval ships when I was there. We met a few San Diegans. We did. Or San Diogians, what do you call them? But anyway, lots of San Diegans at the show. It was great. Yes, it is. Uh, thank you for... We much appreciate that. Uh, yeah. What does Adam do there in San Diego? He makes apps. Makes apps. Yeah. Wow. So what kind of app is uh, like, he um, most known for? Like blinis with um, caviar on them. Oh, appies. Yeah. Oh, I thought you said like apps. I thought you were going computer related. No, I meant appetizers. Oh, <laughs> funny how that works. Nowadays, you hear the word apps and you think, oh, is it on your phone? <laughs> but yeah, he's making like caviar. Caviar is so salty. Tastes good though. It is good though. And it's probably not uh, environmentally friendly to no, eat. No, all the yummiest food isn't. Yeah, funny that. Uh, and uh, so thank you so much, Adam. Next, we have back again, Irene Brand. She says, Irene. Love you guys. She says, Love you guys. Here's a little something to get yourselves a treat. And don't forget, Steve, pets to all the fur babies. Wow, that's great. Now, Irene moves around a lot. She's, she's... Uh, I know where she lives now. Oh, where does she live I now? I can't pronounce it, so I have to get Siri to do it. Okay. Are you ready? 
she's from a small village in Wales. Okay. Jesus. So that's a village in Wales. Okay. That And the name of the village has more letters than residents of the village. <laughs> so that's where that's where she's living now. Wow. Yeah. So Irene is living in... Wow. And what does she do in that place in Wales that I am not going to say the name of? She helps people pronounce it. Oh, good. Yeah. <laughs> somebody, somebody should do it. There, there's British pronunciations too, so I'm, I'm sure we're pronouncing it sort of in a bastardized way. But anyway, well, with a name like that, you're asking for trouble. Exactly. More letters in it than residents. Sixty-three characters. Wow, that's crazy. And then when you add .org.uk, which is their site, it's mm -hmm. the longest domain, the longest valid domain name in the world. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's really bonkers. And it looks like just a bunch of uh, consonants strung all together with the odd O and, the, and a Y and it's maybe very, an A. It's very Welsh. It is very <laughs> Welsh. Anyway, thank you so much, Irene. You are always uh, a big supporter of the show. And uh, thank you to everybody else who supported us this week, either on Patreon or with some donut money. Thanks to all our patrons and Donut Money donors, past and present, for your generosity. It helps to keep the show going. You can become a patron of Dark Poutine at patreon.com slash darkpoutine. For a one-time donation, you can send us Donut Money via PayPal using our email address, darkpoutinepodcast at gmail.com. If you don't already subscribe to the show, it would mean a lot if you did. You can easily find Dark Poutine on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. If you haven't gotten yours yet, my book, Murder, Madness, and Mayhem, is available to order via a link on the Dark Poutine website. And speaking of darkpoutine.com, please check it out for show notes and other cool stuff. We'd appreciate it if you took the time to give Dark Poutine a like or a follow on Facebook and Instagram. Most importantly, thank you for listening. And tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is a powerful thing. So, yeah. Until we return with another spaced out episode. Don't forget to be a good egg and not a bad apple. See you next week. See you next Tuesday? No, it's Monday. See you next it's Monday. Monday. Some yeah. people listen on Tuesday. Well, there you go.